2: like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal Elders, past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sada Khan.
1: And I'm Darren Sargas. Today on the show, we're speaking with Jason Om. Jason is a Walkley Award-winning reporter on the ABC 730. He has a new memoir out. It's called All Mixed Up. It charts Jason's life growing up in Melbourne, his entry into the Australian media industry, grief, love and everything in between.
2: just with your new book obviously all mixed up um which is just a beautiful um labor of literature that you've given as well at what point was it clear to you that this story had to be written
0: well this has been a really personal journey for me because the the inspiration for the memoir it really began uh, in 20 about 2013 on the 20th anniversary of mum's death mum died when i was 12 and to To deal with that i blocked it all out and when i got to 20 years later i had all these feelings which came crashing back through the barricades that i had put up and that was when i decided i really have to shine a light into the darkness of my past because i had a very confusing childhood and i began thinking about that 2013 was the 20th anniversary my grandmother also died that year and then the formal process began More in, say, late 2014, 2015, when I decided I need to turn my investigative skills on my family and to really go digging to discover more about mum and who she was and why she was so miserable. She used to say, I had a nervous breakdown. And what does that mean? As a child, you know, I was 12 years old when she died uh, what does that mean? It's very confusing. So, as a journalist with all the skills over you know over over that time, I then went digging uh, to bust all the secrets in my family because my family they're people who don't talk. You know, Dad's side is Cambodian, Mum's side is Eurasian, Malaysian, and you know, Dad his personality he's a man of few words. He doesn't talk, and then on my Mum's side they were they didn 't want to talk about the past, and they didn 't no one explained to me about what the hell happened to mum and I wanted to go digging
1: mm. speaking on the overlap of you know your journalistic instinct and the personal I want to zoom out a little bit from all mixed up it 's been uh five years since you wrote your you know really poignant piece uh on the journey you've had sharing your queerness with your dad and his acceptance of who you are i feel like especially when the past few years since the plebiscite and marriage equality a lot of us uh, myself included were compelled to share intimate details um, of our lives in order to uh, to grant our humanization essentially as an extension to all mixed up i guess how do you draw the line between what is
0: sacred and what
1: makes sense for public storytelling
0: that's um that's a really good question. I think you know I I I was really when I look back at that article that I wrote in 2017 about my dad's 15 16 year struggle with my sexuality, I was terrified about writing that because you know, it's not a, I didn't take that lightly. It was a very deeply personal thing that was happening with me and dad, and when I started writing thinking about writing that, it hadn't finished in the sense that we were still at a point where dad wasn't accepting me. And I was thinking, do I write this piece where I'm kind of saying dad, dad has said, you know, it's not going to come to the table. Do I write that piece or do I wait a little longer until he kind of comes around? And I was really worried about, you know, am I going to be blowing up my abc career by inserting myself into a very vociferous debate around same-sex marriage and also exposing my dad you know putting putting him in the spotlight so i i i took didn't take that lightly you know it was very i took it very gravely and i was very worried but in the end it went through all the editorial processes and w- uh, the abc decided to publish it on the day of the outcome of the postal vote so it, you know it and it was a deeply personal story that's what it was it was from my own personal perspective and you know if you think back to that time the focus on culturally diverse community it, it just wasn't there you know the focus there was no focus on culturally diverse communities and that was a real um gap in terms of you know the people out in western you know the communities in western sydney that was a real gap there and when you look at you know, say my story, I'm not from Western Sydney, but I come from a culturally diverse background and Asian, you know, there was no discussion among Asian Australians in the public sphere about same-sex marriage. Mm. And I think that article and that story really put it out there. And I've had, since then, you know, I've had many queer and gay Asian Australians come to me and say, you know, thanks so much for speaking about that. They've had similar experiences. They can't talk about it in their families. You know, there's a real silence there. And I think I was, I think me telling my story has enabled people to start thinking about it at least, or even having those really difficult discussions.
2: Well, that um, follow-up interview where you share people's responses Mm. to your story with your dad, um, uh, it's, you know, ruins us even (laughs) when we think about it. Um, How do you feel looking back on that?
0: It was a pretty extraordinary it was extraordinary time when I think back to that because there was there was so much love you know there was so much love in the air you know after the postal vote, everyone was so happy we'd you know our community had been dragged through the mud we'd gone through this intense traumatic experience, and it was a real release, and there was a lot of happiness because I think for me, even sitting here now i'd still get emotion about it because I remember standing in the park with the you know the ABS, you know, about to announce the the result, and I just thought, what if, what if they, what if Australians said no? I mean, we would have been, we would have been, you know, destroyed, mm. you know. Um, and there was, you know, the important thing for me when when I did that TV piece was, okay, let's let's why don't we get all of the positive messages from the public, and read it back to Dad to reinforce his metamorphosis just to kind of underline it and when I was reading out all those comments I think it was a revelation for him because it's a world that he's not familiar with and you know he was reading Twitter and all the comments all the positive comments and he was in this world where he thought it was very shame you know being gay is shameful and he was really yeah just kind of in in a rut of anxiety I think and then when he saw that I was widely accepted and that our story was, you know, loved, then he you know, he it kind of underlined his his journey.
1: Mm. It's so wild hearing like your the like What's happening behind the stories that you're telling publicly and hearing you speak about it now? Because I remember when the results came out, I was also in a park because I had to step out from my office where I was working at the time. Everyone in that office was straight, and they were like, "How are you? Like, are you okay?" I'm like, "I can't do this. Like, I'm going to step out when it gets announced on the news. I'm going to sit. I'm going to sit in the park by myself and and take this news in, which I did. And yeah, I felt that moment of like, what if they say no? Like, yeah, and it was like crushing, but obviously it didn't. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, look. Uh, seriously, uh, people would have lost their lives. That's yeah. the reality. Yeah. Is that if we didn't get that result, and I don't think the pollies really understood that. You know, they they didn't understand the gravity about what it does to our well-being. About you know, this is who we are, and we're not just playthings. You know, mm-hmm. it's you know, politics is a game, and we're not you know, political football. As as mm. as we now we're having kind of that debate, Mark Two now, like it's. You've got trans people mm. and the the issue around, you know, pride jerseys and so we're getting we're again getting dragged through the mud again and it's quite tiresome it's really it's just like bloody hell (laughs) again (laughs) i I know exactly it's like
1: um you touched on this just then briefly jason but broadly when speaking about queerness and the asian community to an outside audience how do we resist the trappings of pitting our communities as more homophobic as a you know stereotypically known and and bring nuance to our queer and cultural experiences
0: yeah look i think going back to this idea that there was a gap during the same-sex marriage postal vote about the the communities who who were overlooked, I actually think there were a lot more people in Australia who were in the middle. So I think Dad was somewhere in the middle because he was on the fence and he was going to be able to be convinced to vote yes. And I think there were a lot of people that the campaigners didn't think about. And I think that they could have gone out there and actually Talk to those people, and we had what six, was sixty forty. So, you know, it, it would be interesting to know now where has that shifted over the p- past five years, and whether culturally diverse communities have actually come to the table. Because I think there were, I think there's a whole bunch of people who are in the middle. Mm. Because at the end of the day, you know, Asian parents they love their kids, you know, they do, but sometimes they have a bloody hard time of actually expressing <laughs> it in the conventional Western sense, you know um and, and, you know and you've talked about you know you you would know all, all the trappings around that about you know not expressing feelings uh and i do think that i i do wish that asian parents would think more about that about expressing their feelings and saying i'm proud of you because as a community i don't know where you know i don't know where that you know repression will will takes us you know, I, I would, I want Asian parents and, and there's been a bunch of articles as well about Asian parents, younger Asian parents saying, I'm not going to do what my parents did to me. Mm. And that's, that's great. You know, culturally, yeah, there, there, there is that kind of reservation and I don't, but I don't know where that, where that takes us.
2: Like, I feel like, especially with my father as well, it's like they are, it, I feel like they have this surprise as well because they um so terrified like they grew up in such a space of fear as well particularly in you know so-called australia particularly in the colony in white australia as well where they want us to just survive like because they come from a place of just constantly having to survive Survival. Mm-hmm. Survival. Yeah. yeah and so when there's this like grand acceptance of their kids that they're, they're it, i wonder if i also wonder for them as well like i feel a sadness for them because i'm like i wonder if you mourn That because you think, oh, maybe if I had just accepted them all these other years, then I wouldn't have had Mm -hmm. to be so terrified as well because they grew up in such a closed space of just trying to get through, um the day-to-day life of the colony and um, also trying to grapple with the fact that they were so removed from whatever um their cultural origins were as well and trying to keep it all still interconnected for their kids at the same time. Like, it's so much to grapple with. And so when they see that there's this, like, you know, grand acceptance of their children in the space that they never thought was possible...
0: I, I just sort of think back to how how harsh Dad was. I mean, he was, you know you need discipline. You know, he'd always say, <laughs> you need discipline. You know, it's very author. He was very author- authoritarian mm-hmm. and um, that's just the way he, he he was, I suppose. And then after mum died, he was even, yeah, he sort of got sucked into this vortex of grief and he became even more angry mm-hmm. and that was really difficult. I think that um, though, you know, the love is there but it's it's kind of, yeah buried underneath all the this you know the the, the struggle mm-hmm. i don't think that i you know I, and with speaking generally here i don't think all asian parents are like that um but certainly with my dad yeah he's he's very he was very harsh
1: jason your dad hosted the commercial on sbs radio when he um came to australia the way that passion for broadcast transferred from him to you it's fascinating to watch unfold, um, in the book because it's not really clear cause and effect. It's like, it felt like it was tacitly meant to be, but it still happened quite independently. But I feel like there are moments in the book where maybe you're working on a story or building, building a story where you step back and say something like, oh, I've become my dad. Um, (laughs) what are those moments like?
0: I have, I, yeah, I have become my dad in so many different (laughs) ways. It's, uh, I don't want it to be like that. But it's, <laughs> that's what's happened. Look, I I didn't go into journalism because of my dad. You know, dad's show on SBS Radio because he set up the Khmer language program, mm. um, and he was you know he was the founder, of, one of the founders of that. He, he because I didn't speak Khmer fluently, I had no I I had no clue about what he was saying when we listened to him on the radio. <laughs> so, you know, there wasn't any there wasn't any connection that I made between his show and my, my path into journalism. Um, you know, it was probably when I was 15 that I started thinking about, you know, journalism. It was either journalism, uh, graphic design or environmental science because I was a bit of a greenie when I was 15 years old in the 1990s, wanted to save the koalas and fundraise for saving the koalas and all that kind of thing. Um, but it wasn't, you know, he, he didn't want me to go into journalism. Uh, because he had some bad experiences in in the industry, and you know, but but here I am, I'm, I'm I am I'm, I'm doing exactly. And also, I and I you know one of my first jobs was at Alchemy, the youth radio show Alchemy on SBS Radio. You know, back in two, you know back in two thousand and two two thousand and three, and I ended up working in the same pretty much the same office after he'd left. I was working in the uh, the Ballet Centre, where SBS Radio was in Melbourne, so it was, it was, it was. I was following unconsciously, following the same path as my dad. <laughs> yeah, um, I love it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah,
2: um, Jason, we'd also love to talk about. Um Your the conceptions of race and discrimination within the media and news industry over the decades, um, particularly as you've worked throughout it. And in June, ABC News Director Jason Stevens issued an apology. Justin, Justin, sorry, um, (laughs) Justin, um, Stevens issued an apology for the racism and bigotry that was experienced within the ABC workplace. And um, you said uh, sometimes the broadcaster you love can let you down, and that it was an important first step. Uh, can you speak to how your experience at the ABC has changed since then?
0: Yeah, I, I think you know, I, I after that story came out about Justin's apology, there were people on Twitter who were sort of dismissing it as you know as an insincere apology, but but you know i've been i've been at the abc for 100 years you know the abc is 90 years old but i've been there for 100 years <laughs> um, but the the it was significant because it, it it was you know there would have been so much hand wringing within the abc about oh should we do this should we say this and that's why i say that the apology was significant because it's about recognizing uh, what happened to you know to culturally diverse journals. that's the first step and you know when i think of, think about my career You know, when I began in you know late two thousand and five in Adelaide because I was a cadet at SBS and then I moved to South Australia to work with the ABC. Back then, it was you know nobody talked about cultural diversity, nobody talked about representation. There was zero discussions about that, so there wasn't you know I wasn't on the radar uh, you know because within the ABC. Uh, they weren't looking at cultural diversity. And then secondly, I was also in South Australia, which was considered, you know, the you know, a void. You know, one person described it as, as the darkness of South Australia. And that was back when the ABC was, you know, focused, very, very Sydney-centric, it still is to a degree, but that was when, you know, the other states were not, you know, Considered, weren't even considered. You know, um, they were known as the BAF States. You know, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, Hobart, and Darwin wasn't even wasn't on even the radar, in the <laughs> not even on the radar. So, I've been in the business for eighteen years. I think seventeen years or sixteen years, seventeen years at, at the ABC, and a, a lot has changed. You know, the landscape the, the landscape has changed. You know, from no discussion about cultural diversity, where uh, to to having a South Asian. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias, you know who you you might know, to having you know and indigenous reporters and reporters with Asian heritage reporting in Ukraine, you know that is a giant leap from when I began, Uh, and it's not to say that there wasn't diversity in the ABC, there just wasn't enough of it, and it it, it is evolving, and you know of course there's lots lots more to do, and I think certainly in the area of leadership, that's where there's more more work to do because we we don't really have the Asian, you know, there's very few Asian Australians in leadership positions.
1: I love the moments in the book where you reckon with the power of radio, the knowledge that people across all far reaches of the country Mm. wake up to your stories and to your voice. It's such an intimate medium, obviously, you know, we're doing it now and um, at its core is language and how we use it, how we communicate in an audio sense, but it's not without its limits. What's been a time where you felt the language of radio didn't match the potency or internal world of a story that you wanted to tell?
0: I used to use quite a bit of natural sound when I was in Radio Caf. um, And people would think, oh, my God, that's, like, revolutionary. Because we weren't... Because I don't think in a lot of the news reports, like, it it was... very conventional, you know, people would just write the script and not think about Atmos, but Atmos really transforms because um, uh, it takes you there. I mean, look, that's a no-brainer mm. to me, but back when I was, like, putting it in, you know, upsots and um, the actuality, people thought that was, like, a revolution, but I sort of think, no, that's actually the, that's where you, where you sh- should start because what's happened is that in storytelling, it's less, as they say, less voice of God, you know, it's less the reporter... Uh, you know, uh, preaching from on high about the story, and it's and it's bringing up the the actual talent. And I actually think that in storytelling, you need to let the talent breathe and let the personalities come through. That's you know, put more of that and less of the journo. Because for me, it's never been about me in terms of telling the story in my script writing. If you look at it, it's not it's not about me. And I think some journo's misunderstand that. Uh, that it's not a, it's not about you.
1: Yeah. Mm. Mm. I feel like sometimes we've had battles on this show because uh, it's like radio is also a system, you know, like there are unquestioned modes of, you know, tone policing or like etiquette, you know, good radio sounds like this, or a good radio voice sounds like this, the way we speak about, or the way we speak should be structured like this, and I guess this speaks to exactly what you were talking about in like, you know, what is revolutionary to some is like normal to you. Um, because, well, you know, I, I, that doesn't mean... I, yeah, yeah, it does not make sense, but, like, yeah. Well, what does challenging it look like to you?
0: Well, I, I like... I like listening to FBI and community radio because the voices are more real, so you get a sense of... Yeah, it's just... It, it's being it's about being authentic, and for me, in storytelling, I, I'm looking for the real people. Like, I... I you know, I don't... Personally, I don't. I don't particularly like doing celebrity interviews or you know focusing on celebrities because it's it's you know they've got enough of a platform and and I look for the everyday stories and the personal stories and that that's what I focus on is the people because that's what that and often often the best stories are from just ordinary people um, say in a disaster or um, in some massive news news event it's those people. You know, because it it, it it it's about connecting with the audience, so that they can relate.
2: Mm.
1: Mm. I want to bring it back to all mixed up. Um, you know, it speaks to living in a white Australia as an Asian gay man. Um, it seems like, you know, unfortunately, a bit of a rite of passage that you reckon with and then ultimately reject this idea of a of a sexual hierarchy. Yes. You know, being on Grinder and seeing no Asians, no rice, <laughs> and like sitting between derision and fetishisation yes. as an Asian man. Um, you know that we exist outside the systems of power that would prescribe value, um, and desire to our ethnicity. I'm wondering if you could have skipped that part in your life, would you?
0: Oh, um, ab- ab- you know, th- absolutely. I mean, it would have made me more confident, and uh, you know, less anxious about my body and about the way I look and the way I, you know, oc- occupy that space or. You know, move within that space, you know, gay clubs and the scene. Because there, there is, you know, I say in the book that racism is the gay community's, and I say gay because it is gay, yeah. uh, the community's dirty little secret because it is. It's widespread, it's entrenched, it's accepted, and it kind of reflects more broadly the general anti-Asian sentiment in Australia. But then there's also this, in the gay community, it's like specifically... Our bodies, that our bodies are not attractive, were undesirable, and I think that 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 is really damaging. So when I was grappling with my sexuality, coming to terms with it, working out who I was, when I was, you know, in, in a teenager, I I was watching this documentary called China Dolls by Tony Ayers, very well respected Asian Australian um, producer, and. He and his friends would be talking about how they felt that there was a sexual hierarchy that Asians were, if not at the bottom, near the bottom, and that really, uh, yeah, it really shook me up because I was thinking, shit, I'm trying to, uh, you know, am I gay or not? And I'm thinking that's the world that I'm going to be walking into, and that's what I found exactly. That's what I found that that you know that people like me and you, Darren, are, you know unworthy, uh, of being attract- attracted to or attractive. Um, but you know, that structure and that idea has been set up by other people, you know, this idea that we don't belong. And so we don't need to accept that, you know, that's been imposed on us. And I think that as gay Asian Australians, we need to reject that and to put that to one side because it's not helpful. It's not helpful for our well-being and our self-esteem. It's not, you know, it, it's, it's, awful, you know, and that type of attitude in the gay community needs to stop, and to a degree when you look at the apps it has stopped but it's probably gone underground or it's probably more coded, mm. and the code now is something along the lines of, I like beefy guys or I like hairy guys, or I like uh, guys with a bit of meat on them, or whatever it might be there's now a code, and it's it's implicit uh, and you know, uh, for a very long time, the ar- the prevailing argument has been, oh, it's a sexual preference. It's been the prevailing argument, which is absolute bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, plainly, it is racism. You see that some people are just not worthy. Uh, and yeah, I I think it is changing, but it's not changing fast enough. And some some what really upset me was that some gay Asian guys have been coming to me, saying, well. We don't feel like we have the power to speak up. And I'm thinking, shit, even now, you know, even now, um, you know, you know, a good generation since I've come out, um, that other gay guys still feel this way. It's really disappointing that that other gay Asian guys would feel that way.
2: Yeah, it's a lot of, um, like you were saying there, these are things that are placed upon you. They're not yes. things that you seek. No. Um, and it's all um, real... Um, pertinent conditioning around like white, um, white gays and having to find a way to exist amongst like the white gays as well because that's exactly what's been placed upon us. And it
0: also creates this thing where, where gay Asian guys feel like they have to have permission to be in a particular space. But there was this um, young guy in his 20s. Um, I had a community event with a lot of Asian Australians in Auburn a couple of weeks ago. And he, he read some excerpts out from the book uh, and it was very touching, and then he later he asked me like how do, how do we you know what, do, what what should we do? How can we negotiate this and I said well you just got to go out there and claim the space mm. and then he was like, "Yes, claim the space because <laughs> we have to because no one 's going to kick you out. We just have to go out there and and be there and be visible and claim the space you know mm. you know if you 're in a bar or a gay club, just go there, just be there you know you don 't have to move
2: exactly and I love that we've come to this nice natural conclusion now because we asked this question of all of our guests, Jason, and that is, when did you realise there was power in your race? Oh, God, (laughs)
0: that's a heavy question. Um, Probably only very recently because, you know, as a child, I rejected my heritage, particularly the Cambodian side. But now I've kind of, you know, I've come from, you know, self-loathing to pride you know i'm i'm proud of my heritage and i think we all should feel pride in our heritage because we because oft, as culturally diverse people because often we're told that we shouldn't be mm. and and that's taking something away from us and we and once you realize that that there's a system and that's that's kind of operating and um, influencing you to think that you're not worthy then then you can you know it's very liberating to realize that there's there's this power structure going on and you don't have to operate you don't have to buy into mm-hmm. it you know race matters race matters race matters race, race,
2: matters, matters. race, matters, race, race matters race matters race matters race, race
1: matters, matters. Race matters. Race matters.